Welcome back to the Dark and Stormy podcast. Before we get into today's episode, we just wanted to mention a few brief things. We have just released our first Patreon episode in a new structure that features a guest narrator reading a creepy classic short story followed by a discussion around the inspiration for the story. The story itself is an incredible piece of literature and so far we've received fantastic feedback on the episode. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll receive access to this and future bonus episodes and digital content. A huge thanks to those who have already signed up. We're trying to turn this into a weekly regular podcast, and any donation, no matter how small, is incredibly beneficial. For our next Patreon episode, we'll be continuing our series on Lady Spree Killers, and this episode will be available within a few weeks. If you would like to help the show grow in another way, share your love for the podcast with your true crime-loving friends. And one last thing, thank you so much for all the amazing feedback we've received. We love hearing from you. Today's episode will be a slight detour from the true crime stories we've previously discussed, though there is a slight overlap since some of these cases have mysterious elements where foul play was possibly involved. Today we are discussing the 27 Club, a group of musicians and other artists from various eras and genres who all passed away at the tender young age of 27, leaving behind a legacy elevated by their tragically premature demise. And while this exclusive club includes all types of performing artists, for the purpose of this podcast, we will focus primarily on musicians. The 27 Club represents an extremely diverse group of artists from various backgrounds, levels of fame, music genres, and the manner in which they died. It includes obscure musicians, as well as some of the greatest and most celebrated musicians that ever lived. One intriguing fact we found while researching this topic is that, while many of these artists are from different eras, there are countless connections between them. And many members were influenced and inspired by 27 Club alums from earlier generations. Some of these artists were massively popular in their lifetimes, household names in fact, but there are some that did not reach widespread fame until after they passed on, and some you may have never heard of. In this and upcoming episodes, we will explore the lives of some of these artists, rather than just focusing on the facts of their demise. We will discuss them as the people they were and the icons they became. And of course, we will discuss the music. The list is sadly quite long, so we have selected eight members to discuss in depth. In today's episode, we will cover the first two. Firstly, We go back in time to discuss one of the most influential musicians of the last century. A musician that continues to inspire generations of musicians 80 years after his untimely death. His name was Robert Johnson, an African-American born in the early 1900s in Mississippi, when lynchings were a somewhat common occurrence and life for a person of colour was beyond difficult. 
white people were overtly dominant and oppressive towards the African-American population, and they generally maintained the status quo through brutal force. It was an era when, in many states, it was dangerous to simply exist for a person of colour. Much of what we know of Robert's life is told by people who knew him, so keep that in mind as you listen. Robert was part of a huge family with several brothers and sisters, and from a young age, he distinguished himself as a talented musician, successfully taking up various instruments throughout his youth, including the harmonica, the mouth harp, and the guitar. He was masterful with the harmonica, and in his teenage years, he went from a mediocre guitarist to a remarkable standout with impressive speed. Because of the time and place, religion was a huge influence on people in the area, and this partially led to a bizarre rumour that is indelibly connected to the mythology surrounding the man. From a modern standpoint, it seems likely that he was a musical savant, but at the time, it was said that Robert met the devil at the crossroads and sold his soul for his guitar skills. So incredible were Robert's skills that people could not believe he was naturally gifted, instead postulating that his talents were satanically bestowed. This was compounded by the fact that he chose primarily to play secular music rather than gospel, which some people considered an ungodly thing to do. And of course, there's the possibility that this myth was created out of jealousy and ego, with older musicians wanting to save face as they witnessed their student quickly surpassing them in terms of talent and musical prowess. The genre of music he played was called Delta Blues, a regional subgenre born out of the Mississippi Delta, an area of the southern United States, which includes parts of Mississippi, Louisiana and Arkansas, ending just south of Memphis, Tennessee. This place has been metaphorically described as the most southern part of the United States and was home to vast cotton plantations where the owners accrued wealth at the massive expense of their slaves. This is considered by some to be the birthplace of the genre that is blues music. Despite his talent, Robert was born at the wrong time in history and would never reach the heights of fame and popularity he truly deserved. At the time, both blues music and country music were blossoming in the South, and the two genres shared a number of commonalities. The most obvious difference was the race of the performer, resulting in the two genres being marketed separately, with the blues known as race records and country known as hillbilly records. Essentially, this guaranteed that racist fans could enjoy music that featured only white musicians. And sadly, it meant that many blues artists of this era, Robert Johnson included, were unable to transcend the racial barrier until their music was covered by a white musician. During his life, he was a constant traveller, a couch surfer, a busker, and a bit of a playboy. He was married multiple times and fathered a number of children, and supposedly had a lady in every city, all of whom knew him by a different name. 
Despite his charming way with women, he tended to be a loner and was considered by some to be mysterious and complex. He was described by one man who had a recording session with him as very young and very shy. His true love was the road, and when the road called to him, he would Irish goodbye his way out of any city onto the next, where again he would display his musical talents on street corners. That same incredible gift that would see him become one of the most respected guitarists by some of the biggest names in the music world decades on. Because of his various fake identities and wandering ways, it's hard to know the specific details of his mercurial life and intrepid travels. He was friends with a number of other blues musicians, but even they could only glean bits and pieces about how he lived his secretive life. This only exacerbated his status to the near mythical proportions. And there are stories of him performing across dozens of cities in his short life. Though the validity of these tales is questionable, since most were through word of mouth alone. One thing we know for sure is that he spent several days recording in Texas in both 1936 and 1937 for the American Record Company. During these sessions, he laid down 29 songs, which were released on 78 RPM records in 1937. These songs were re-released as a compilation by Columbia Records in 1990, selling over a million copies and winning a Grammy. Robert Johnson died in August of 1938 in Greenwood, Mississippi, where he was playing a show. He grew sick very suddenly and died unexpectedly over the course of a few days. Eighty years later, there's still no conclusive cause of death for him, further adding to his mystique, though at the time it was rumoured he was poisoned by a jealous husband. Later, there was talk of syphilis and still other references to pneumonia as his cause of death. In the mid-21st century, a historian and journalist named Gail Wardlow did some intense digging into the lives of Johnson and others, focusing primarily on the Delta Blues. He managed to find Johnson's death certificate, which had a notation stating the possibility of Johnson dying from an aneurysm caused by syphilis. We will probably never know the absolute truth about his death, or even the full story of his life. But one thing we do have are the recordings he made in the final years of his short life. 29 epic songs that were the inspiration for countless more. It's no exaggeration to say that his music, and that of other blues musicians of his era, almost completely shaped modern music. In 1961, a compilation of some of his songs, fittingly called King of Delta Blues Singers, was released and inspired many budding musicians and ranked number 27 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 best albums of all time. In the subsequent decades since his death, his songs have been covered by countless other blues musicians, along with some of the most famous musicians of all time, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin and The Doors. It's not a stretch to say that some of the biggest bands of all time might not have existed without the influence of Johnson and the Delta Blues musicians. 
Eric Clapton considers himself to be Robert Johnson's biggest fan, claiming the latter to be his single greatest musical influence. Clapton covered 14 of Johnson's songs for an album called Me and Mr. Johnson, which peaked at number six on the US Billboard charts and remained on the Billboard Blues chart for 90 weeks. He also released a companion album and DVD of his tours, where he played Johnson's songs in some of the same places that Johnson himself was known to have played. It's safe to say Clapton brought a lot of attention to Johnson's work well after his death. Interestingly, in Rolling Stone's first edition of the 100 Greatest Guitarists of All Time, Clapton and Johnson were listed at number four and number five respectively. Even now, over a hundred years since his birth, his songs continue to be covered by the biggest names in modern music, such as John Mayer, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the White Stripes. While his catalogue of songs is limited, his legacy undeniably confirms they are mighty and will continue to live on long into the future. As is often the case, he would never know the impact his life would have and sadly, he died destitute. His final resting place is unknown, but that is not the end of his story. Over the last eight decades, he's become a multi-millionaire in death, leading to numerous court battles. In the 1970s, a producer named Steve LeVere discovered Johnson's music and realized it was not public domain. He managed to track down Johnson's half-sister, Carrie Thompson, who agreed to hire him as an agent and split all future royalties from his music. In addition, they took a number of bands, such as Led Zeppelin, to court in order to have them pay for covering their songs. Ultimately, this made them both very rich, and after Carrie died in 1983, LeVere only grew richer he successfully took the Rolling Stones to court over the use of some of Johnson's back catalogue, songs they'd been playing for years, and he received a very large settlement. When the compilation album was released in 1990 and sold 25 times what was expected, distant relatives began to emerge to stake their claim on a share of the royalties, not to mention multiple scam artists. And then there was his son, Way back in 1970, a historian named Mac McCormick had gone in search of long-lost relatives of Johnson's. He found a woman who'd mothered a child by Johnson, a boy named Claude, who was then 40 years old. The mother, Virgie Mae Smith, was 17 when she gave birth to Claude, and he never really knew his father, apart from the fact that he was a travelling musician. He had had a tough life, and grew to be an incredibly hard-working and generous man. And so, decades later, when Claude was in his mid-sixties, he received a court summons. The battle over royalties was raging, and Steve LeVere said he'd heard that Johnson had a son named Claude and hoped to get him involved in things. Claude went to a lawyer friend and asked, So, have you heard of Robert Johnson? The friend replied that of course he had, to which Claude calmly replied, well, that's my daddy. This friend became his lawyer and they joined the battle over the royalties. Claude's mother was still alive and testified to her romance with Johnson 
as was her good friend Ula, who regaled the court with the raunchy tale of the time when she and her man went on a double date with Virgie May and Robert. The date ended with the four of them getting down to business in the woods, pressed up against trees right next to each other. Eventually, the judge ruled in favour of Claude, who'd never been particularly concerned about the money and only wanted to reclaim his rightful place as his daddy's son. He was hurt by his distant relatives, who all accused him of lying for money. Despite the huge payment he eventually received, Claude continued to work for several more months before retiring, being that kind of man. He and his wife Ernestine purchased a large house and tried to adjust to their new comfortable lifestyle, though they never really could. Claude decided to demonstrate his lifelong generosity on a grander scale. For years, he had scraped together extra money to deliver baskets of food to elderly residents in his community. When he passed away in 2015, at the age of 83, his lawyer told of how he'd put his money to good use, saying the only real change was that his list grew bigger and the baskets grew larger. The next artist on our list, Brian Jones, was unsurprisingly inspired by Johnson's music as well and is the first of many on our list to label him as a key influence. The stories of the 27 Club are all tragic for different reasons and in Brian Jones's case we explore someone who actually reached the dizzying heights of fame before plummeting into a downward spiral that would eventually claim his life. Jones was born in 1942 in Gloucester, England, into a well-to-do family where he was surrounded by music from a young age. However, his particular combination of incredible intelligence and general disinterest in adhering to societal norms sent him off in an entirely unexpected direction for an English schoolboy of that era. Whilst music was an integral part of his life as a child, Much of it was classical, which failed to excite him in any significant way. He fell in love with American blues and jazz when he was very young, and this turned out to be his greatest musical inspiration. He was a natural musician, and quickly developed prodigious skill with any instrument he tried his hand at. Upon hearing a record by Charlie Parker, the acclaimed jazz saxophonist, he gave it a crack and quickly became impressively good. He also began to play slide guitar, a technique where the player has a metal or glass tube placed over a finger on the fretting hand, which then they slide down the strings to make that particular twang sound very much associated with the blues. Robert Johnson was an incredible slide guitarist, and Brian Jones became very well known for this instrument, possibly above all others. Later, he picked up some more whimsical instruments, including the dulcimer, the organ, and the marimba. Jones, like many musicians, was a bit of a playboy. By his early 20s, he'd had five children by several different women, none of whom he maintained a relationship with. Also in his early 20s, he made some important connections as he became involved in the local blues music scene. Connections with several musicians that would go on to become world-renowned. 
Jones began sitting in with a local group called Blues Incorporated, playing the slide guitar, and it is here he became acquainted with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, blues enthusiasts who'd been friends since school. When he later decided to start his own blues band, he put up a flyer which quickly caught the attention of Jagger and Richards. In the early days, the band's lineup shifted a number of times before it eventually settled on the first incarnation of official band members. Brian Jones, Ian Stewart, Mick Jagger, Bill Wyman, Charlie Waits and Keith Richards. They are all young musicians with a shared interest in blues and many of them had also grown up listening to the American greats. Muddy Waters, a contemporary of Robert Johnson's, was considered to be the father of Chicago or electric blues, a style that had evolved out of the Delta blues. Electric blues shared a lot of the basics with Delta blues, but the guitar was electric and the harmonica was often played through an amp. Lyrical themes also evolved, a change that reflected the great migration of African Americans who moved in their millions out of the South and up into the urban environments of the Midwest and Northern United States. Thus, the lyrics reflected the change and the trouble one might endure. Muddy Waters found success in his life and he toured England in the 50s, inspiring British blues. The newly formed band of Jones, Jagger, Richard et al. were a huge fan of Waters and even named themselves after one of his songs, Rolling Stone. By all accounts, Jones was the driving force in the creation of the band, the name and their early success. He also acted as unofficial band manager for a time. The band experienced great success early on and built a large following very quickly. They were the raunchy alternative to the Beatles, who were still lingering in their bubblegum pop phase. When the Beatles were smoking pot for the first time and singing about holding hands, the Stones were already deeply indulged in hard drugs and having hit songs about making love and spending the night together. After a few years, Jones felt like he was being ostracised and alienated by the rest of the group, which only got worse when they hired a new band manager, Andrew Oldham, who'd previously been a publicist for the Beatles. Under Oldham's management, the band migrated away from the blues inspirations that had been their foundation, and Mick and Keith began a songwriting partnership that would chart the future direction of the group. Despite the fact that Jones had started the group, his lack of songwriting skills meant he was less useful to the band as the 60s progressed. Oldham had previously worked with the Beatles, and it seemed as though he wanted the Stones to emulate, at least partially, their style in music. While all of the members were already a hit with female fans, Oldham wanted them to appear younger so as to appeal to a teenage crowd, the same crowd that had gone wild for the Beatles. The reality was that while the Beatles were able to maintain their boyish charm into their 20s, the Stones would always seem like their sleazy older brothers. Jones, in particular, was considered a fashion icon and was always dating beautiful models and actresses. During the early years of the band, he dated a woman named Pat Andrews with whom he had a child. 
Decades after his death, she still thinks of him fondly, especially as her son looks so much like his father. There's a story that Pat likes to tell about the time Mick Jagger tried to put the moves on her and she rejected him. But there were also later rumours that she had, at one point, slept with Jagger. This wouldn't be the last time a fellow band member tried it on with one of Brian's girlfriends. The 60s rolled on and the Stones' popularity was soaring. At the time, psychedelic rock was incredibly popular and the band wanted to have a shot at the genre something Brian had no interest in. The Stones' attempt at a psychedelic album, their Satanic Majesty's Request, was a flop, and many critics and fans saw it as a substandard rip-off of the much-loved Beatles album Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The boys eventually moved back to the genres for which they were best known and best suited. The rest of the band felt that Brian was becoming a liability due to his drug and alcohol addictions, which caused his extreme mood swings and made him difficult to be around. Like many young people before and after him, he was unable to achieve moderation and control his vices as the band continued their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In 1967, there was a turning point for the band. In February, someone had called the police with a tip and they raided Richard's home searching for illegal drugs. Both Mick and Keith were arrested and in order to take the heat off, they took a trip to Morocco. By this time, Brian had been in a two-year relationship with an actress-slash-model named Anita Pallenberg and the two of them also planned to go to Morocco. Brian had been to Morocco before and was eager for the return trip. At the time, Morocco was a fashionable destination for Europeans, and much of the popular music of the era had a distinct Eastern influence. Keith, Brian and Anita were to travel by road to Spain and take a boat to Morocco from there. However, Brian grew ill as they passed through France and felt he wasn't healthy enough to continue the trip. The trip only grew worse from there. Jones spent his 25th birthday alone in a hospital bed as Anita and Keith continued on their way to Morocco. It is likely that this was the night their affair began. Within a few days, they were all reunited in Morocco, but it was obvious to Brian that something was off between he and Anita. He suspected something had happened between her and Keith, and he angrily accused her of cheating on him, to which she replied that she and Keith had fallen in love. Stunned by her betrayal, Brian drowned his woes in drugs and alcohol. Anita moved her stuff into Keith's room for the remainder of the trip, leaving Jones the awkward fifth wheel on a vacation with two couples, since Jagger's girlfriend, singer Marion Faithful, had decided to join them on the trip. Displaying a shocking lack of empathy, The group grew tired of Jones's depressing pity party and disappeared, leaving him and Morocco behind without even a note to inform him of their departure. Things grew steadily worse among the bandmates after that fateful trip. Brian was arrested for marijuana possession in May of 1967 when his house was raided by the police. He received a fine and probation unlike the charges received by Richards and Jagger, which resulted in prison, though their sentences were eventually dismissed. Brian's musical input continued to wane as their relationships deteriorated. 
In earlier years, he played a huge variety of instruments on many different tracks, but in the last two years, he played fewer and smaller parts. And rumour has it, he went to the studio to record these parts separately. His last appearance with the band was in December 1968 for the Rolling Stones' Rock and Roll Circus, a performance piece filmed on a BBC soundstage featuring the Stones and other artists, including The Who. The band ended up releasing this footage as a documentary several decades later, with only vague explanations as to why. By 1969, Brian's time in the band was drawing to an end. The Stones wanted to tour the States that year, but decided it would be best if Jones was no longer a part of the band since he was only a liability when they were on a long tour in a foreign country. At least, that's the excuse they gave. In June of 69, they broke the news to Jones. They let him announce it to the world on his own terms to save face, where he stated that he'd left of his own volition due to artistic differences. He spent the last few months of his life on Cotchford Farm in East Sussex, England, a residence previously owned by A.A. Milne. The details surrounding the last night of his life are murky. What we do know is that in the early hours of the 3rd of July 1969, he was found unconscious in the pool on his property by girlfriend Anna Wolin. His death certificate stated the cause of death to be death by misadventure, with the inference that he was drunk and high and had accidentally drowned. Interestingly, the autopsy allegedly showed very small amounts of drugs in his system and the equivalent of only a few pints of beer. Just a few days later, the Stones held a free concert in Hyde Park. This had been scheduled long in advance and is when they'd originally intended to introduce Jones's replacement, Mick Taylor. Instead, they chose to use this show to celebrate the memory of their founder. Jagger read from Adonais, a poem originally written by Percy Shelley about the death of John Keats, another creative who died much too soon at the age of 25. They also released hundreds of butterflies into the sky. Of course, Jones's girlfriend Anna was beyond distraught, and she later revealed that she and Brian had planned to attend the concert to show that there were no hard feelings or bad blood. She spent that evening comforted by band member Bill Wyman and tried to contact Jagger with no response. Mere days after Jones's death, the Rolling Stones' manager gently pressured her to return to her home country of Sweden. She did, and shortly after she learnt she was pregnant with Brian's baby. Sadly, she miscarried, and when she went back to the Cotchford farm to gather her belongings, she found the whole place cleaned out, and it seemed as though everything was being swept under the rug. A few decades after Jones's death, Mick Jagger spoke to Rolling Stone magazine about the last days of his life. Mick said that while he didn't feel responsible for Jones's death, he did wish he'd known more about drug addiction and about how certain drugs can affect one's temperament, so he might have perhaps been more understanding and forgiving of his bandmate. Fellow Stones member Charlie Watts had a different take. He was quoted as saying, We took his one thing away which was being in a band. 
You might think that this is the end of Jones's story, a tragic rock star death, the result of hubris and vices. But it seems there were all kinds of conspiracy theories surrounding the death of Brian Jones. His distant ex-girlfriend, Pat Andrews, is unequivocal in her belief that Brian's death was no accident. Recently, she has accused the band of erasing Brian from their history and believes Brian was murdered so that he'd no longer have any claim to the band's intellectual property. She supports her claims by stating that Brian was a lifeguard and there's no way he could have drowned accidentally. As for Anna, the poor young woman who'd had to pull her boyfriend's lifeless body from the pool, she has insisted for many years that Brian did not die in an accident. She claims that an employee of Brian's, Frank Thorogood, killed him during an argument, but she's unsure whether it was intentional or not. Apparently, Frank was fired that day and was furious with Brian. Anna has tried endlessly to dispel the rumours circulating about Brian's death, such as his depression following his departure from the band. On the contrary, she asserts he felt happy and carefree and was optimistic about his chance to work on new music. One such new song he'd been working on was called Has Anybody Seen My Baby? Interestingly, the Rolling Stones later released a song with that exact title. Anna still suffers from nightmares about that tragic night and wishes more people knew the truth about his final months on Earth. In the 1990s, two books were published accusing Frank Thorogood of being Brian's killer. Daughter Jan Bell later came forward with her story. Retelling what her father had told her, he had said to police, apparently Keith Richards had pulled a knife on Brian the day before he died, over rights to the band's name. Frank said that he tried to intervene and things turned violent when Brian refused to be paid off for turning over all rights to the Rolling Stones' name. An anonymous officer later told the media that he'd planned to follow up on the daughter's story, but a senior officer demanded he drop the matter. Bell's revelation was part of a huge number of documents that came to light in 2009, documents that led law enforcement to reopen an inquiry into the case, which sadly went nowhere. Years later, a former manager for the band revealed that there had been a private investigation which pointed towards Tom Keylock, a former chauffeur and tour manager for the band. This is the man to whom Frank Thorogood supposedly gave a deathbed confession. To further complicate things, in 2008, a woman by the name of Janet Lawson came forward. The night that Brian died, she was asked by Tom Keylock to go to Brian's place to check on him. She was Keylock's girlfriend at the time. She confirmed that Brian had fired Frank that day, and things were incredibly tense between them. As Frank was still living at that residence, he and Brian, along with Anna and Janet, were spending an awkward, uncomfortable night together. At one point, both women left the outdoor area, and when Janet headed back out, Frank came running in, shaking all over and looking disturbed. Janet claimed that it was she who'd found Brian in the pool, and she was 100% convinced it was Frank that had killed him. She also revealed that the majority of the police statement they'd made that night was coerced, 
They were all in shock and completely exhausted, and Anna had been given sedatives and was barely awake. In 2014, Terry Rawlings, the author of one of the books written in the 90s called Who Killed Christopher Robin, released an updated version and continues to assert that Thoroughgood was the murderer and that there was a huge cover-up. In addition, there is an obscure story concerning a woman named Joan Fitzsimmons, who'd had an affair with Thoroughgood and in July of 1969 had been assaulted severely, leaving her blind for life. She later alleged in a statement to police that she was afraid of Thoroughgood because of information concerning the death of Brian Jones. These endless stories and contradictory evidence surrounding this case is incredibly convoluted. We've tried to present it as cogently as possible, but what seemed like a simple story on the surface is in fact a massive jigsaw puzzle with hundreds of pieces missing. Frank Thoroughgood and Tom Keelock are long dead, and Janet Lawson died not long after telling her story. Even with definitive proof, there's no real justice to be had here. Was it a major cover-up involving one of the biggest bands on the planet? Or a random, meaningless accident perpetrated by a disgruntled and angry employee who'd just been fired? Or was it in fact an accidental drowning with no foul play involved? To be sure, it will likely remain an eternal rock star mystery. In the days following the death of Brian, the world mourned and fellow musicians paid homage through songs and words. One such person who dedicated a poem to him that week would die exactly two years later on the same day, himself joining the 27 Club. But we will get to him in time. Until next time, keep that nightlight on because you never know what's waiting in the dark.